0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Kaufman. He's the Director of Russia Studies at the Center for Naval Analysis. He's been a frequent guest on the show. Mike, welcome back. Hey,
1: thanks for having me back on the show.
0: Okay. I've told you this personally, but I want to tell you publicly that, you know, I'm mad at you and I'm mad at you about the topic of our conversation about the fact that you recently visited Bakhmut, Ukraine, the topic of our conversation, but as the urban warfare kind of guy for you to visit one of the most important battles, I know not militarily, but kind of in the modern era in comparison to like the battle of Kyiv, I'm pretty upset with you. Yeah. Did you want to go? Yes, I want to go. And now I think that window has closed, although I'm returning very soon to do, continue my research on the Battle of Key, which I think is honestly, just from my own perspective, one of the most important battles, the modern era as a battle that either achieved or denied strategic objectives for one side. I'm going back to do that research and the Bakhmut window is pretty much closed for now.
1: Yeah, well, it's like Kiev's a decisive battle and because it determines what happens in the first couple of days in this war. So it's actually an essential battle to follow if you see this war as a one that's launched as a decapitation attack, try to eliminate the political system and, and the government in Ukraine. But Bakhmut, well, John, what well, I can tell you about Bakhmut uh, and going there is uh, Oscar Wilde said there are two great tragedies in life. The first one's not getting what you want and the second one's getting it. So... I know you an avid uh, scholar of urban warfare, but there is such a thing as seeing urban warfare up front the close. So is definitely one of those places, and you know one of the biggest challenges is actually not in Bakhmut; it's getting in and out of Bakhmut, which I'm not even sure you really can do at this point, uh, or they'd like to. If you want, I'm, I'm happy to share some thoughts on just the aspect of that fight, and then we can drill down or dive into uh, at least my experiences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And- you know, now that we've gotten that I'm mad at you out of the way, <laughs> I thought I'd we'd start with just you know, as I kind of do my case studies, and I've been to Susha and Kiev and written a little bit. We'll do more. I like to give people an overview of what this city actually is. So the city of Bakhmut, you know, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong on any of this, since you recently walked the ground, which there's no replacement for, just from my own studies of battles, and I and I hope to be in Mariupol. One day, as another battle that I want to walk the ground and, and get an assessment of it. I haven't done real time outside of my own experiences. So, your experience will be very unique. But the city of Bakhmut, a city in northeastern Ukraine in the Donbass, um, it had a pre war population, you know, the figures kind of jump around about 71,000. It's only about 16 square miles in area space, so relatively small. But like many cities, to include Kiev, it kind of has a very old history as a guard fort. It's split by the Bakhmuta River, which is very, as I walk around, you know, everybody's training areas around the world, like that obstacle in the middle of the, you know, whether it's the Dnieper or the, you name it. Most cities populate around a a major water source, a river or a coast, which becomes a military obstacle at some point. And I'm sure... We'll talk about that, but, you know, Bakhmut was a guard fort. It was a significant choice to make that location a defendable spot along a river, which is needed for the civilization. It's about 53 miles north of Donetsk. So that's really why I I like to give people an area, you know, and to include the density, which I'd love to hear from you. You know, we say 71,000 pre-war population, but not all cities are the same. The density, the structures are different. That's why you know, Kiev is night and day to Mariupol, which is night and day to Bakhmut, and that that has implications for actually the tactics or how important the city is or not to the even the campaign or the geographic area, which I hope we'll talk as well as whether it's a stepping stone to a critical logistical hub or, or anything like that. Could you give us like the history of? I mean, I'm tracking really you know, Bakhmut even being mentioned you know early as May. Of last year, and then really the main assault starting in August. So this this has not been a short battle. This this battle's been going on for a while. Am, am I right?
1: Yeah, sure. So a couple things about Bakhmut. Battle for Bakhmut really technically starts around July, after Russian forces capture Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. It is a city in an industrial part of Ukraine. It's just southwest of Soledar, which is known for salt mining. Uh, Many of the cities around this area are, you know, cities that basically are based around different kinds of resource extraction or manufacturing. Bakhmut's not a big city, but it's in terms of urban environment that's quite variegated. So it's a city where there's kind of a large western part and a smaller eastern part to it, bisected by the river. The river is not very big, I will say that, but as you quickly find out when you're there... Any uh, water obstacle like that, when the bridges are blown and you have forces on the eastern side, it means you're doing case vac by taking people out through stretchers via, you know, improvised bridges across the river. You can't get vehicles from one side to another. It becomes a big factor pretty fast. On the eastern side, much of the, the city is sort of multifamily homes, right? On the western side, it's fairly urban with nine-story Soviet high-rises, a lot of apartment buildings. And those apartment buildings give plenty of opportunity for various types of emplacements. The city also has several plants in it. Now, it's nothing like Mariupol, right, or Krivirig. It doesn't have, you know, kilometers length as of stall facility. But I walked through some of these, and they're pretty sizable industrial locations, right? These are places where you can hide armor, infantry, fighting vehicles. These are large hangar-sized facilities that you sort of walk through, if I can, if I can offer a depiction here. And the other, the other part that's important is that Bakhmut you know, obviously you have uh, lots a number of sort of high rises, but you also have lots of basements. And most people in urban fighting, they live in basements. Okay, those are the kind of strong points, and they come out of them to fight. And so. On the eastern side, which is where much of the fighting was, you know, the other big uh, challenge for folks fighting in that city is that Bakhmut is both a battle for a city, but it's a very significant battle around the city. And what's happening is Bakhmut's kind of in a big kind of punch bowl. It's on low ground, surrounded by high ground. It's not, in of itself, the city is not a great place to fight, although you can hold it because of the density of the urban environment, because of some of the high rises. You can hold it for quite a while. The issue is really what's been happening on the flanks is that even though Ukrainian military had been holding the city for a long time, in recent months after the loss of Solodar and Russian advances to the south, the flanks began to hold, right? And so the short story of Bakhmut, when you're talking to people fighting there is, you know, how's the, how's the fight going in the city? And the answer is good. How's the overall battle for Bakhmut going? The answer is not good. The Russian forces are quite past Bakhmut on both the north and south flank of it. And the main MSR, the main supply route is is under threat and regularly being contested either via artillery fire, people trying to blow a bridge and what have you. And I actually, you know, I used this MSR and the night after I used it, a Russian missile took out one of the bridges that was connecting it to the city. And then Ukrainian military showed up and engineers put down another bridge over it. But sort of a back and forth and Russian positions were at that point, on a northern rise about a kilometer or less from parts of the MSR. And the challenge is that the MSR dips from Yar. So behind Bakhmut, you have a high ground, right? That's why if the Ukrainian military has to surrender Bakhmut and withdraw. It's not a big deal. They can withdraw to fairly defensible terrain on high ground. And the challenge in getting in uh, Bakhmut is you got to drive pretty fast along this dip that comes from Yar into the city during which you could be observable for some period of time even now, and I don't know when this podcast will come out. Who knows what the situation will be at that point? It's pretty dynamic.
0: That's a great rundown, Mike, and and I think those those MSRs, whether it's the M zero three or the five hundred four, like um, this is what we've been watching. And my friend Chuck Ferrer, who gives a you know has a daily Bakhmut map and talks about this this glove, which is the the Russian advance encircling, which is interesting to me as an urban warfare specialist, or you know. Student, as I like to say, you know, how do you attack a city? There's actually like six different ways. Everything from signaling you're coming to the actual thing that people like to use, which is is actually not that common. Is just siege, which means you encircle it and then just wait the people out, and that's your intent. Versus an in isolation of the city with the intent to to penetrate it, clear it, whatever. And as I've seen, you know, the different command plans as I've tried to figure out, and this is you know, your expertise of, you know, who was in charge of this fight in the beginning and what was, what looked like to be their plan, whether it was a a penetration from the, you know, basically moving from the East to the Western side or an encirclement with the intent to, you know, almost do a Mariupol, which is encircle it, tell the people that they're surrounded, ask them to give up or cut off those supply lines, which I think has continue to be an issue for Russia's, if you can't isolate an an urban objective, it makes the the fight very prolonged.
1: Sure. So my impression from this war has been that in almost every urban environment, two types of strategies have played out, if not simultaneously, then concurrently. There's been both a fight for the city itself and a fight to isolate the city and envelop it in order to turn it into a full-on siege. And so almost every, I think, urban battle that I've seen in this war had involved dismounted infantry with infantry fighting vehicles and armor supporting them fighting in the city and having that task and larger forces on the flanks of the city fighting for control of the ground lines of communication to it, which were the bigger battle sort of unfolding around the city. And, you know, in Bakhmut, you've seen a fight that, had sort of simmered for, you know, about four plus months since July. But then after the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, Russians redeployed forces to Bakhmut, and Ukrainian military redeployed forces from the Kherson front as well. And so those battles suddenly take center stage, right? As both sides reinforce. And Bakhmut goes from a, one battle that was ongoing during the war and not actually at all the decisive battle, right? to being a politically symbolic battle in a contest of wills. It's also an interesting story of how very quickly a fight that was being had transitions from one of many sort of operational level engagements to a fight that uh, the political leadership invests into. And now we're kind of at a place where, at least my impression is that the Ukrainian pursuit of of a tenacious defense of Bakhmut, it was very notable for several months. just blocked Russian forces for a long time, right? But now there's a very active debate, you can tell, as to whether or not this is not, this is a strategy of diminishing returns, right? And that basically, you know, this fight is continuing around the city that is being enveloped, and it's largely driven by the political significance of it, rather than, let's say, the military rationale of holding on to that position.
0: Yeah, I actually want to, um, tease that out a little bit. If I was at West Point giving a class, you know, we do things on center of gravity analysis, or we'll assign a campaign and tell them to analyze the campaign based on the elements of operational art. If I was giving a class on why certain battles happen, the political aspect, right? Because sometimes it doesn't meet military reason. So I'd really like your kind of, and this is the question I get: Why Bach move? Is it of tactical, operational, strategic importance militarily? And then how has the political significance of it changed? And this is what drives battles that really shouldn't happen, whether it's Stalingrad or other ones where people get to expose that war is a contest of wills. And the political aspect sometimes trumps even the first battle of Fallujah that that I wrote a case study on. Will Trump kind of military what you'd say common sense or something. Can, can you give me a little bit of your insights on why do you think the Battle of Bakhmut has happened?
1: Sure. So look, the Battle of Bakhmut from a pure military strategy standpoint made sense because that city is a gateway to Slaviyansk and Kramatorsk, right? And Russia's objective, at least minimal objective, so far in this war has been to capture Donbass. And so there's a northern part of Donetsk that they've been trying to seize for some time. Now- from a military standpoint, the big problem with pushing Bakhmut is that after their defeated Harkov, the Russian military no longer had a northern axis of advance, so it couldn't isolate Slavansk and Kramatorsk, the two main cities they would come up against after Bakhmut. As I've kind of explained in this war, if you don't have the ability to isolate the city, right, if you can't cut the MSRs to it, then you are basically biting off Let's say, an extended attrition driven fight that will consume a large part of your force, spend a lot of artillery ammunition, and ultimately destroy and level the city you intend to capture. And that's the way it's been in a number of places, right? And so and, and the prospects of winning that urban that urban battle in any sense other than I have taken the territory on the map, no matter what the cost of my force actually was, which is not necessarily the best way to define victory, is about the best you can hope for. And so from that standpoint, the balance for black movement military didn't make sense. But, you know, it was like, tell, I've told folks, you know, on my own team, military strategy is ultimately political, right? It's there to link operations with political objectives. And uh, once political leadership decides that this particular city is not going to be surrendered, that it's going to be a fortress or what have you, and the city is holding it becomes a political imperative then no matter what you say, that's what operations begin to be structured around. So that's why Bakun in many respects became significant, right? Now there are very few people left in the city. There's still some civilians there. though like, not to take a detour, but I have to tell you, there's few things as surreal as being in an environment like that and seeing civilians still living in some of these apartment buildings, still being out on the street. And of course, a city like any city that's been ravaged by war, you have lots of dogs that, that are out and, and about sort of, Hanging out with you, they even cross in buildings as you're trying to reach vantage points. And uh, I'm a big dog person, so for me, actually, it's nothing. Uh, often, nothing sadder than than seeing uh, homeless dogs in a city that's the site of a siege. But anyway, sorry, I digress.
0: No, no, it's a, no, it's an important point that I highlight all the time, and even in our case studies, there is no such thing as an empty city. And if you're training in an empty city, you're not being realistic. Even the Battle of Aachen during World War II. Both the Americans and the Germans cleared it and emptied it the civilians. And there are still thousands of c- civilians in basements and things like that. There is no such thing as an empty city.
1: Yeah, that's right. And we're one apartment building. And on the way down, we, we passed uh, an elderly couple that was still living there. And Ukrainian soldiers just stopped for a minute to check in on them and make sure they were okay. And you know, out there, a lot of uh, these older folks have nowhere else to go or options to leave. So they stick around. I was amazed at the impact that Starlink was making. You know, it had a huge role in aligning connectivity and access to data on the battlefield. And the way Ukrainians were fighting, they had access to just a lot of data, really good situational awareness. And even to be honest, funny things like if you're in a CP and there's a mess hall there, which I was in. And it was around maybe lunchtime, and the guys are there watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. you know they're streaming it from somewhere or what have you. And it's in the basement of you know a building, and you can almost forget yourself
0: <laughs> when you're while you're there. Now you're just rubbing it in. again, i'm I'm mad at you. So on the political aspects, and this is what i've if I've talked about Bakmu, I, I try to highlight this. That I know there's characters, you know in politics, there's also personalities, leadership. You know, I I said that when President Zelensky visited back in December, said that Bakhmut wasn't the fight for Bakhmut, it was the fight for Ukraine. He takes a battle flag from Bakhmut, delivers it to the U.S. Congress. It's the biggest supporter of military aid to Ukraine. I said that elevated kind of what the battle of Bakhmut would become. And on the other side, and I know you say that the media has grossly overemphasized the leader of Wagner private military contractors group, Pregosian's influence or aspirations for political influence. I think you said about 10% of that is actually real, but do these personalities that influence the political objectives? Of course, if you're a good political leader, you listen to best military advice. Does that play into it? Does Prigozhin's interest in wanting to have a win for himself outside of just having a win for Russia? Did President Zelensky overemphasize the importance of the city that you know, drives us to today?
1: Sure. So, look, there's always personalities in war. Prigozhin is a good example of somebody that is tituling in charge of this Wagner force. So the Wagner PMCs are heavily kind of, let's say, not integrated, but working alongside the Russian airborne, right, and backed by regular Russian force. It's a bit of a myth that sort of Wagner PMCs are fighting, have been fighting Bakhmut on their own. Uh, When you're there, you see they're backed by Russian air power. They're backed by Russian artillery. There's Russian airborne supporting them in a host of operations. Sure, he's got his own motivations. He's got a big incentive to try to take Bakhmut. And that's why they've been sort of grinding away at it for uh, more than half a year now. But, you know, so is the Russian military. The fascinating thing about Wagner is, of course, it's an organization with very different culture and different approaches to the Russian military. And there are two main different elements of it. One is kind of prisoner Wagner which is intermixed with their regular uh, more experienced units. And the prisoners are sort of, you know, obviously drawn up from the Russian penal system and they're typically used as expendable infantry. But what's fascinating is how they have a rudimentary command and control system. Well, those folks basically are put together in assault groups that have, you know, an offline map and they have waypoints, you know, every 50 meters on this map telling them exactly where to go And a comm link of somebody telling them, you know, you're at E-37, now go to E-38, now go to E-39, and and so on and so forth. So they do have a a rudimentary but pretty effective command and control system to how they send these units forward. The big thing, though, John, is it's not really why Ukrainian forces had been losing ground around Bakhmut, right? It's not these sort of larger so-called human wave attacks taking place. They sort of degrade and exhaust Ukrainian defenses, but the problem was always fairly well organized experienced wagner units right backed by the russian military putting themselves together into detachments essentially four detachments of maybe around 50-60 men altogether two assault one fire support one evac and resupply and coming at ukrainian lines first employing artillery to basically degrade or suppress the the defending positions And then conducting an assault with their own fire support, their own assault detachments. And believe it or not, some units work almost exclusively in the morning during day and others work almost exclusively at night. And that's much more, I think, a more honest telling of what's been happening in and around Bakhmut.
0: No, that's fascinating. That really is. And what do you think the cost has been, at least to the Russian side? I've seen numbers reported by different organizations about the costs that whether it's Uh, We'll just lump Russia in general, right? PMC, VDV, whoever. What is the cost that they've paid so far in attempting, because they haven't taken it yet, as of this recording, attempting to take this piece of ground? Sure.
1: So regarding taking this piece of ground, it depends how you count it and what you're factoring in. Is it, you know, the overall battle for Bakhmut? Is it uh, the fight over the last six, seven months or just the city? Here's what I think. I think that probably a you know a fair accounting is that Ukraine has had a rather favorable attrition ratio over the course of the whole battle. Okay. I don't think it's as wild as the official numbers out there like one to seven and nobody I've met in Ukraine believes that either. I think in the broader battle for Bakhmut, you know, who knows, maybe one four, one five if you consider sort of all the fighting around the city that's been taking place for months. I think the big problem is that that favorable attrition ratio has really shrunk in the last two months. And that in the general fighting for the city, with Russian forces now holding the flanks and much of the high ground, that attrition ratio is not especially favorable. And keep in mind something else. And it's kind of a banal point, right? Nobody has limited resources, but Russia ultimately has access to a lot more manpower over time if it chooses to keep mobilizing the way the Ukrainian forces have, right? So Ukraine needs if it's going to pick an attritional fight, to have a, a very significant advantage. And the biggest problem is force quality. Now, I'll close out on this point. This war has really bled the best that's available in terms of force quality over the course of the year. And you can replace people, sure, but you can't replace your best commanders. You can't replace good junior leadership. You can't replace good NCOs with very little training. And that's what's been happening. The Ukrainian military is largely mobilized at this point. It's substantially expanded. It suffered a lot of casualties over the past year. It doesn't look remotely the way it did when the war began a year ago. And so the big issue for Ukrainian armed forces isn't so much the manpower change, it's the quality. It's losing your best people in fights like that and asking whether or not a battle like Bakhmut at this point really plays to Ukraine's advantages as a kind of dynamic military capable of mission command and a lot of initiative. Whereas in Bakhmut, it's forced to hold static lines and trenches and basically have this fixed battle with Russian forces. I hope that makes sense.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And definitely, if listeners listen to your War on the Rocks talk of to two different Ukrainian armies, the attritional value that was there in the beginning, because a lot of people have said that the objective could be, nobody has true insight on what the actual political objectives given to the military to, to follow through are, but to... Basically, a trip the, the Russian war machine and buy time for a spring offensive. I absolutely agree with your assessment that maybe that was in the beginning. The traditional you know, lopsidedness is now negated, and it has reduced Ukrainian spring offensive capabilities by investing, like people do in history, in a city for political reasons.
1: Yeah. well, What I'll say is, okay, always in war, you got to watch out for sunk cost fallacies, right? Where battle has been taking place over a place. And then uh, over time, you look at you like, why is this battle taking place over this particular city? And the answer is because it has been for the last five months. You know <laughs> Now you're sort of committed to it. But the other side of it is, I personally don't necessarily question Ukrainian logic. I don't like armchair generalship. The only thing I will say is that as an analyst, my job is to kind of identify objectively what the risks are. And the risk of this strategy and dragging this battle out the way it's been going up until whenever Ukraine launches its offensive is the potential of being encircled in Bakhmut. And that's a significant risk. That's the only part that worries me. And if you were there and you saw it, John, you'd be worried too. Because I worry far less about Ukrainian force being able to hold the city than I worry about them being able to hold the surroundings and the actual supply route. And that's, the, that's where the bigger challenges lie. In general, though, I think tactically you'd find a lot of things interesting about Bakhmut. And one of the things I sort of learned, right, I'm no expert on urban warfare. That's, that's your specialty. Is that, you know, you look at cities and you think cities are cities, but they're not. They're all very different. Like, why did the northern flanks of Bakhmut over time fold? And there are many answers. The units that were fighting there, their leadership, the correlation of forces. But also, you know, maybe those buildings are built into a different kind of ground and they have no basements. And once a position is hit by artillery fire or anything else there, it's destroyed and it's no longer available. And so defense on that side is much harder, let's say, outside the city then it would be to hold Bakhmut itself, where Ukrainian forces are holding fairly sizable buildings with large basements in them and a good vantage point on the western side of the city itself. This is kind of like minute detail, but sometimes those details can matter.
0: No, no. And I used to say I had job security, but the more I talk to you, I'm just saying your urban warfare experience and, and knowledge and proficiency is, is greatly Increased and, I'm, and maybe I'm a little bit scared, but I'm, I'm just jealous. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, and this is why in my little mini manual for Ukraine, like get you know, if there isn't an underground, create an underground because the underground is as sniffing it in urban warfare as it was decades and, and a long time ago. If and when Bakhmut falls, and I'm not saying that's a, that's a given conclusion, and I agree with you. I, you know, I'm concerned about Ukraine's um, ability to hold that out and not be encircled. But I don't even have the insight that you do, but I think it was a gateway to Kramantors. But what happens when and if Bakhmut falls to Russia? How significant is it? How much will be played out in Russian media? And does it really matter to the tactical lines because of the defensive positions you, you spoke about that favor Ukraine even more so to the west of Bakhmut?
1: Sure. So the honest answer is it depends how it falls, Right. I think that if Ukrainian force can't hold it, and there's a good chance they can. I mean, they might be able, they might launch a major counterattack there for all we know and try to relieve the flanks the next month and be able to sustain this battle until their offensive. Although there is a bit of a major assumption that the Ukrainian offensive will take place anywhere remotely affecting the battle for Bakhmut, right? And that's not necessarily the case. It's not actually very, very clear what the Ukrainian major offensive operation is going to do to change the outcome of the Battle of Bakhmut to begin with. But to me, the big ch- question is, how does this battle end? And if Ukrainian forces are ultimately forced to withdraw, if they can withdraw the way they did from, let's say, Sivr and Donetsk and or from Liman, that's one thing. If it leads to an encirclement and then a siege like Mariupol, let's say that's something else. And, yeah, I think definitely Russia, Russian military can draw some morale boost from that victory, but it's not that significant. And keep in mind something important. If Ukraine loses Bakhmut, it doesn't have that much of a strategic impact on the overall position or their ability to defend Slavansk and Krematorsk. Those are fairly entrenched cities in terms of fortifications outside of them. They enjoy high ground. I mean, personally, I wish I had seen Ukrainians preparing more outside of Yar for like a plan B than I think I did, because my impression is that sort of They're very committed to holding Bakhmut, and I hope they have a solid plan B in mind just in case that doesn't work out. But I don't think anything, the Russian forces are not going to gain momentum and then march on something else, going to Kramatorsk. I just don't see that as being realistic for them. That's part of why I think the media is a little bit overly fixated on Bakhmut relative to other major ballots, you know, Vulodar, Avdiivka, Marinka, the fight from Krimina to Liman, and what have you.
0: I agree. And we didn't even talk about Vuladar and and the losses that Russia experienced there. Wherever they were trying to get to or wherever they go to, it seems Ukraine definitely took advantage of that. Although we we like to call battles by their vicinity, I agree with you, there's been more significant fighting around Bakhmut than actually in the city. Much like my friend Tony King says about Stalingrad is we all focus on the room clearing, but there was more fighting by multiple army groups on the outside of Stalingrad than it was inside Stalingrad.
1: Yeah. Stalingrad, yeah. It was ultimately decided by an envelopment, right? That's right. And sort of Russians figuring out, I can't remember what was that you know, no surprise that Romanians holding the flank of uh, the German forces were the weaker, were the weaker flank to push. But regarding this battle overall, there is quite a bit of fighting in the city, and part of the challenge is that you see a lot of artillery fire back and forth, and it hits everywhere, John. I mean, I'm talking, you know, if, if you're anywhere near Bakhmut, if you're kilometers west of Bakhmut, you are well within all of the artillery fire that is on this battlefield. You are within earshot of aircraft. You are even, the us put even at a gas station that is actually remarkably very well stocked, right, that has Ukrainian forces and other people stopping through some towns away, you are well within earshot of incoming. Just to so understand, kind of, just to paint the picture for folks to appreciate what that battlefield is like, because everybody has long range artillery and MLRS, and, you know, there's aviation being used by both sides, although I didn't see any Ukrainian air power except for in the south of Donetsk, maybe towards like of Devka front. But nonetheless, that was sort of my experience of it. And it's interesting some of the you know how the various tactics play out. For example, a lot of buildings are cleared by using anti-tank guided missiles, you know, various type of ancient frag weapons. It's not a very hospitable environment for tanks, but you see plenty of infantry fighting vehicles in and around the city. I did on my way out of Bakhmut see a reinforcing tank platoon coming in, and it was a group of Ukrainian tanks that were entirely captured T-80s from Russian forces at Azum Zoom from the Harkov campaign. And they're easily recognizable because I know what 4th Tank Division T-80s look like. And some of them were pretty rare. <laughs> and, and, they were, and they were writing, basically only captured Russian T-80s coming in. It was pretty fascinating to see. That is fascinating.
0: Would you say that the Ukrainians... Combined arms, fighting capability and urban terrain has greatly increased based on their experiences to date.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, both sides learn from each other and they get better. And Ukrainians say the same thing about Russians, you know, and they say, despite the kind of ossified image of Russians driving to the same minefield every morning at Vulodar because they're told to, when given the option, Right, to pursue a fight the way they want to, Russian forces also adapt and they iterate with each other, if that makes sense. Both forces learn off each other in the course of the battle. So they adapt tactics, they and the longer the battle goes on, the more the battle becomes its own microcosm, right? Like just basically people who have served the Bakhmut over the course of the last six months had one particular experience of the war, and a number of forces have rotated through through this fight. So the battle takes on kind of its own dimensions and What's interesting about the war in Ukraine is my own experience kind of going around and doing this field study and I guess what you could teach early call field work. If you know one battle in Ukraine, that's what you know. In fact, that's all you know, and they're all very different, right? The situation in Luhansk and in the fight between Krimina and Liman in this sort of sparsely, largely destroyed forest is very different from the battle out in the open fields outside of Uladar where Ukrainian military can fight dynamically pick their own positions, set up minefields, engage Russian armored mechanized forces as they will, versus the heavy trench works around Bakhmut and the dense urban fighting in that city based on fixed positions where, you know, it's basically a knife fight from building to building. And these units are actually very, very close range to each other engaged in that urban battle. Oh, that makes sense. That's part of the reason you have to go.
0: No, again, I thought I had job security, but yes, I tell everybody that no two urban battles are the same and no two battles are the same and why I love my job and continuing doing research. Now it's basically you know making sure I catch anything that you put out to understand the specifics of a very, very terrain-specific, battle-specific, unit-specific context for war. And that's unfortunate. No, it's not unfortunate, but you know as much as I do now that I travel around is that the war in Ukraine has been going on long enough that just about any stakeholder will say, well, because this happened in Ukraine, that validates what I was doing. Yep. <laughs> Truth. All right, Mike. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining the show.
1: Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me again.
0: Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern Wars two at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.